This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, economist Nouriel Roubini discusses his book, Mega Threats. He offers his thoughts on how the U.S. can avoid what he calls the worst economic catastrophe of our lifetimes. He's interviewed by Wall Street Journal senior writer John Hilsenrath. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I'm John Hilsenrath from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, here to interview Nuriel Rabini on his new book, which I'll hold up, Mega Threats. Uh, might rhyme a little bit with mega trends, but I think this has got a maybe darker view of the future. Nuriel, can we start out this conversation by just uh, asking you to lay out your, your thesis? What, what are you trying to say in your book? Well, I'm uh, an economist, usually economists... Uh, uh, talk about comparative advantage to write about what they know about. And I've been an expert of economic, monetary, and financial issues, including financial crisis. But then when I was looking at our world, I realized to understand where the world economy is going, where the planet is going, where democracy and geopolitics is going. You have to look beyond uh, economics. Uh, there are, in addition to a variety of economic, monetary, and financial threats, some of them new, some of them old. Also, uh, geopolitical threats, the risk of war between uh, great powers that is rising, given that you have uh, four revisionist powers, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, that challenge the economic and geopolitical order that the U.S. and the West created after World War II. Of course, we have the huge issue of uh, uh, climate change. There's a slow-motion uh, train wreck. We've had a massive uh, pandemic COVID-19, this was not the first one, it's not going to be the last one. We have uh, the effects of artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotic automation that may increase the economic pie, but it's going to lead to more inequality and it's going to also lead to essentially a, a, a rise of technological unemployment that is going to be permanent. We have a beginning of uh, deglobalization and protectionism. Uh, because of politics, geopolitics, and many people being left behind with trade and globalization. We have a backlash against liberal democracy all over the world, uh, where authoritarian populist regimes of the extreme right and or the extreme left are coming power uh, all over the world. Uh, In the U.S., we had uh, January 6th, and there are entire books written today by scholars about the risk of violence, civil war, even secession and stuff could happen in 2024. So to understand this world, we have to think about the variety of mega threats that are affecting us. And this is like a matrix of 10 by 10 risks. Each one of these risks affects the other one and is affected back. So I had to go beyond my traditional expertise to understand what may be happening to the world in the next 10 to 20 years. Well, so this is one of the things that jumped out to me in, in reading the book is this isn't just a list of 10 discrete threats uh, to the economy or humanity. These are intertwined risks, uh, as I read it. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how the various threats, the 10 threats that you talk about, are intertwined with each other. Yeah, they're absolutely intertwined and interconnected with each other. There are other authors like uh, Adam Tooze at Columbia and others that have recently spoken about the idea of polycrisis. And my idea of mega threats that are interconnected to each other is essentially a similar kind of idea. Uh, There are many links. Uh, For example, there is a link that people don't realize about the relation between uh, pandemics and global climate change. We had a major pandemic in 1918, the Spanish flu, and nothing until the 1980s. And since then, we've had HIV, SARS, MERS, swine flu, bird flu, Zika, Ebola, COVID-19, monkeypox, and God knows when it's going to be COVID-23 or 24. 
The reason is that we destroy the animal ecosystems over time because of climate change, and therefore the animals that uh, have the pathogens like pangolin, bats, and others get closer to livestock and human beings. Therefore, these are called zoonotic diseases that transfer from animal to human, so they're becoming so much more frequent and virulent and dangerous and costly in the last 40 years exactly because of climate change. Or, for example, as we have in climate change, the permafrost and the tundra in Siberia is going to melt down. First of all, we're going to release uh, 10 times more uh, greenhouse gas emissions because all the methane under the tundra is 10x of the greenhouse gas emission as CO2. But then there are pathogens that have been essentially frozen uh, under the tundra, uh, literally viruses and bacteria that could come up uh, again alive and God knows what kind of diseases they can bring. And a few of them have been actually discovered in the last uh, few days. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll add a couple of threads to this intertwined story you're telling. In addition to environmental change, um, we have globalization and urbanization, right? So people are traveling more uh, from one big city to another, and that makes uh, the pathogens themselves more mobile uh, and gives them more contact points. Uh, Absolutely, that's the case. So globalization is one source of transmission of mega threats. One is the mega threat, of course, of uh, pandemics and a variety of other diseases. Of course, climate change is a global phenomenon. Uh, If uh, parts of the world create a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, then uh, they pollute and damage the rest of the world as well. We know about the transmission of financial crisis, contagion, when the global financial occurred uh, in the United States, then there were other countries that went belly up from Iceland to Ireland to Spain to Greece to Italy to Dubai, to name a few. So there is financial contagion. Global recessions tend to be synchronized most of the time because they're also transmission to trade and financial channels. So definitely in a world that is more globalized, uh, shocks that come from key regions can have a global effects, and sometimes even shocks coming from uh, smaller regions can have a global effects. So, so let's let's pull the lens back a little bit of, uh, uh, on this. You talk about mega threats. What do these mega threats mean uh, to our viewers out there? How is life? How are these threats going to affect our lives over the next ten or twenty years? Well, there is a ser- severe risk uh, to our livelihoods our incomes, our jobs, our savings, our wealth, our health, about the risk that climate change, of course, is going to cause severe damage to our homes and our cities and our lands. And uh, geopolitical risk can lead uh, even to war among great powers. You know, I live in New York. If uh, an unconventional war were to ever happen, Uh, then, you know, the first nuclear bomb is going to strike New York and Washington and the other two, Moscow and Beijing, most likely. And, of course, the the theme of AI is that AI, machine learning, robot and automation increases the economic pie, but it leads to technological unemployment. Initially, it was only routine or manual jobs that could be automated. Then we discovered that even cognitive jobs can be sliced uh, in a series of tasks that can be automated. But now even creative jobs could be, over time, automated by AI. Uh, You know, there are AIs who are writing now uh, movie scripts or pieces of music or even pieces of journalism. Even my job as a Fed watcher and trying to uh, forecast what central banks will do could be easily done eventually in the next 10 years by an AI. It's going to look every economic data, every speech by a... Fed official, the reaction function, and they can predict what the Fed will do next month better than I do. So I can become obsolete myself, even as a leading economist. Well, so you, you're, you've certainly lived up to your um, w- title that some people call you as, as Dr. Doom. This is a pretty gloomy picture that you're painting of, of the future. Um, I want to learn a little bit more about you uh, and kind of how you came to this worldview. Um, I'm always interested in, in reading books about in, in the sections uh, where they talk about their own 
backgrounds. In the back of the book, uh, you talk a little bit about your childhood. Uh, let me see. I believe you were born in Turkey. You moved to Iran, then to Israel, uh, and then to Italy. Can you talk a little bit about what life was like for you as a child? Uh, were you doomy and gloomy then? <laughs> no, I was not doomy and gloomy then. And in the book, I point out that uh, in the period of when I was born in the late 50s, but starting probably after World War II, and all the way until the early 80s when I moved to the United States to do my PhD in economics in Harvard. You had about 40 years of relative peace, prosperity, and progress. You know, when I was growing up, whether I was in the Middle East or in Italy and Europe, I never worried about uh, a nuclear war among major powers because after the detente between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the early 70s and after the opening of Nixon to China, the risk of war between U.S. and the Soviet Union and China that was already low became totally minuscule. I never heard growing up about climate change in the 60s, the 70s, in the 80s. Nobody worried about that. It was not really an issue. There were people worried about resources, like the Club of Rome, on how too many people are going to drain natural resources in terms of food and so on, but was not an issue of climate change. I never heard about uh, global pandemics because the last one had occurred in 1918, and then the first one we had was in the early 80s with HIV. I never worried about AI destroying, uh, say, most uh, jobs because we were in the middle of AI winter, right? There was some research, but not leading to anything. I never worried about protectionism and deglobalization because we're integrating. There was the GATT and then WTO and then the Soviet Union collapse and Central Eastern Europe joined the global economy and then China and India and other emerging markets. So we had globalization, not deglobalization. We had hyperglobalization. I never worried about the debt crisis because private and public debt as a share of GDP were low. And growth was robust in the 60s and even the 70s. And therefore, there was no risk of uh, debt crisis. You know, I never worried about even implicit debt because there were lots of young workers and aging of population was still limited with migration. And therefore, the implicit liabilities coming from unfunded Social Security or healthcare, Medicare were non- non-existent at that time. I didn't worry about financial crisis because until the early 80s in Latin America, the cycles uh, were minimal or modest because there were capital controls and was better supervision regulation. Yes, there were some economic downturns, but with the exception of the 70s, with the stagflation coming from the two oil shocks, uh, again, even the, b- the business cycle and economic cycle were relatively moderate. And finally, I lived uh, in liberal democracies like most of the West and advanced economies, and authoritarian regimes were only in countries that were relatively very poor like China, like the Soviet Union, and some other countries. So, you know, I was a pretty happy camper, I must say, because I knew that if I studied and I worked hard, I would have a stable job for the rest of my life. I could become more or less successful, depending on hard work and luck and my brains. But I never thought that my life would be wiped out by climate change or AI or a nuclear winter or pandemics or a global financial meltdown. Well, these are risks that now in the last 20 years are emerging. Uh, Those risks were not even on the radar screen of anybody like me. I'm 64. That was growing up in the 50s, in the 60s, and the 70s. But right now, there are radical, very, very different threats compared to what we have observed. Historically, yeah. So so, um, you are a happy camper. That's that's good to hear. You... uh, Moved with your family from one place to another, uh, learned to, to work hard. Of course, there were challenges affecting humanity uh, in the 60s and 70s, especially a lot of your book focuses on the problem of inflation in the 70s, though it, you say you lived for some time in Iran. There was a revolution in Iran, the Vietnam War. Is it the case that there are always threats out there and that this is just kind of part of the condition of humanity, or is it your view that the threats have become more grave uh, in, uh, to humanity today than they were during this happy camper childhood of yours? 
there are always threats, there are always risks, there is always uncertainty, there is always uh, volatility, there's always some regional or local crisis or even a civil war. But as I pointed out, in a period between uh, 1945 and the early 1980s, uh, the risk of a war between great powers and a nuclear winter had pretty much disappeared after the detente and the opening to China. Uh, the risk of climate change was non-existent, was not even on the radar screen. The risk of global pandemics was not there. The risk of AI destroying most jobs was not there. The risk of deglobalization was not there. The risk of severe economic and financial crises was not there. The risk of high debt ratio, private or public, implicit or explicit, was not there. Uh, we're living in liberal democracy. We're living in a world in which there were lots of problems, but there was good economic growth and it was a relatively stable world. We had had essentially 75 years of relative peace, prosperity and progress. There have been plenty of problems, but we have the tendency of believing that we can project from the recent past to the future. Mm. And what I'm saying is that if I'm looking to these mega threats, many of them look more to me more similar to the period between 1914 and 1945, when we had first uh, the end of globalization or the first globalization with World War I and the destruction of World War I. Then we had the Spanish flu. Then we had uh, the crash of 1929. Then we had the Great Depression. Then we had trade wars and currency wars and financial crises. And then we had high inflation and hyperinflation and then deflation. Then we had the rise to power of very aggressive militarist regimes, the Nazis in Germany, the fascists in Italy, Franco in Spain and in Japan. And then we ended up with World War II and then with the Holocaust. That's what happened in those 30 years. Yeah. And many of the mega threats that I'm worrying about today look like those mega threats that are occurring in that period between 1940 and 1945. It's actually worse. Because during that period, for example, global climate change was not a problem, was not even an existing threat, right? Mm. Or AI was not a threat. And until 1945, we didn't even have a nuclear weapons. So it was a nasty, ugly war, World War II. It ended up with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but was mostly a conventional war, while right now, a conventional war between great power would escalate in a matter of weeks into something unconventional can lead to a nuclear winter. So in some sense, the threats are similar, but they're much worse because there are new ones that did not even exist in that 30-year ugly period that we've seen between 1914 and 1945. Right. Um, so I, I want to dwell for one more minute on some biographical uh, conversation about you and then move into more deeply into some of the issues that you talk about in the book. So um, you talk about being a happy camper as a boy and a young man. When would you say you became and how did you become uh, what, you know, what, what you and others now call Dr. Doom? When did you become so concerned about uh, these threats that you've been talking about for, for many years, I should say, uh, before the 2007-2008 global financial crisis, you were one of the people who stood out for warning about this. So, so describe your own evolution uh, as a, an intellectual, as a writer, uh, into becoming a person who was so concerned about the threats to humanity. Well, it was, it was an evolution. Uh, first of all, I grew up uh, in Italy and Europe where in the 1970s there was actually a period of severe economic malaise, high inflation, double digits, and severe recession, you know, stagflation. Uh, if you talk to young people today, until this year, they'd barely heard about inflation because inflation was below the 2% target of the Fed and major central banks, and they never even heard the term stagflation of why you can have inflation and recession at the same time. You need negative aggregate supply shocks like the ones of the 70s. You know, most uh, young people, even traders in the market, don't even remember the global financial crisis, let alone what happened in the 70s. And in the 70s, in Italy, in Europe, there was stagflation. There was also a lot of social strife, uh, 
labor and so on. And those are the kind of things I grew up with and I studied and I researched. You know, when I went to Harvard, uh, one of my advisors, uh, Jeff Sachs, had written a whole book about uh, the economics of stagflation because it was 1983. We were only at the end of that decade of stagflation. And in 1982, 83 was also the beginning of the Latin American debt crisis. And I started doing research and I spent summers at the IMF studying and writing papers about financial crisis in emerging market economies. So I became an expert of emerging market crisis. There was the one in the 80s with the Latin American. But of course, between 1994 and 2002, there was another series of emerging market crises, starting with Mexico, then the Asian financial crisis, then the contagion went to Russia, to Uruguay, to Brazil, to Argentina, to Turkey, to Pakistan. So you had a decade of crisis. And it was also the decade when then I spent two years in Washington working first for Janet Yellen uh, in the White House Council of Economic Advisors and then for Larry Summers and Tim Geithner at the U.S. Treasury. So between 1998 and 2000, there was the peak of the Asian financial crisis that became then global for emerging markets uh, uh, across the board. And I wrote about it. I did policy works and eventually wrote a book about financial crisis and emerging markets. But then there were also times where slowly, slowly, there was the beginning of having financial crisis also in advanced economies. You know, you had the dot-com uh, bubble and then the bust. Uh, we had, uh, when I was in the White House, the collapse of LTCM and the contagion to Russia. Mm-hmm. And we were worried about Russia imploding at that time and the geopolitical consequences of that, or Pakistan imploding. There was a nuclear state. And then... Uh, there were other crises in advanced economies, with the peak of it, of course, being the global financial crisis. But over time, I realized that you cannot be just an expert of economic, monetary, currency, and financial matters because politics, geopolitics, law, technology, climate change, health, pandemics, and other social things affect economics. And of course, economic developments lead to political, social, and geopolitical consequences. So by definition, I had to broaden my interest. And I saw how, in addition to more frequent and more virulent economic and financial boom and bust, there was also a political and geopolitical instability growing in the world. So I had to start to learn about those yeah. as well. Well, so I, I want to pick up on that and, and go through your, your table of contents here, because it picks up on a number of these themes that you just mentioned. Chapter one, the mother, the mother of all debt crises. You talk about a buildup of debt uh, in developed economies. Uh, chapter three, the demographic time bomb slowing of uh, population growth. Uh, chapter four, the easy money trap, boom-bust cycles. Chapter five, the coming great stagflation. Chapter seven, the end of globalization. Chapter eight, uh, AI uh, uh, automated intelligence um, threat, the new Cold War. It struck me as I was reading this that a number of the threats that you lay out in your book, for instance, these debt cycles that we've been through, uh, explosive buildups in debt, uh, private debt in the 2000s and public debt in the last few years, uh, boom-bust cycles, financial crises. It seems to me that We've been in a lot of these um, scenarios that, that you lay out as looming threats. It seems to me that we've already been in them for the last 20 years. Uh, what, what do you make of, of that observation and where would you take that observation? No, I do agree with you. We've been in them for the last uh, 20 years. They're not totally novel. But as I pointed out, uh, until the early 80s, uh, we did not have a very civil financial crisis in either advanced economies or emerging markets. It started with the EM, Latin American debt crisis, and then the other ones in the 1990s and so on. But uh, the point that I'm uh, trying to make is that take the issue of debt. Uh, If you take the sum of private and public debt, private being the one of households, corporates, businesses, and financial institutions, public being, of course, state, local, and central government. As a share of GDP globally, the ratio of private and public debt in the 1970s was about 100% of GDP. By 1999, it was 200. Last year, it was 
350% of GDP and rising. In advanced economies, it was 420% of GDP and rising. In China's 330% of GDP and rising. In the US, that ratio is now higher than it was at the peak of the Great Depression and after World War II. And we're not coming out of a Great Depression and we're not coming out of a major global war. So there's been an explosion of debt and that's important for the following reason. In the 1970s, we had uh, uh, stagflation because there were two negative oil shocks, 73 Yom Kippur, 79 Iranian Revolution. And because of the wrong policy response, looser monetary and fiscal policy, we ended up with inflation and recession, stagflation. But we did not have a debt crisis in advanced economies. We had a debt crisis in Latin America because that borrowed like crazy. And when Volcker jacked up the Fed funds rate to 20%, of course, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil defaulted. But in advanced economies, there was not a debt crisis. After the global financial crisis, we had the debt problem, household debt, mortgage debt, bank debt. So we had the debt crisis, but because it was a demand shock, a credit crunch that led to a collapse of demand, we had lowflation or deflation. So we could have very aggressive and unconventional monetary, fiscal, and credit easing. What I'm saying in the book is that is today we're facing with a number of negative aggregate supply shocks that are stagflationary. In the short run, the initial impact of COVID, now the shock on commodity prices coming from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and three, the zero COVID policy of China. But then in chapter five, I identify at least 11 other factors that are medium long term that are going to be stagflationary reducing potential growth, increasing the cost of production. So we have stagflationary negative aggregate supply shocks, but we also have debt ratios that are four times higher in advanced economies than the 70s. So not only we're at risk of having inflation and recession stagflation, but now, unlike the two previous crises, we cannot ease monetary, fiscal and credit policy because inflation is rising. After the GFC, with massive easing. After the COVID crisis, initially, there was a demand shock, massive easing, because there was lowflation or deflation. Now we're entering an economic slowdown that looks like a recession in advanced economies. We have to tighten monetary policy, credit policy, and fiscal policy. So you have the worst of the 1970s in terms of negative supply shocks, and the worst of the post global financial crisis world where we had debt problems, but we didn't have that time inflation. So that's why I worry about what I call the great stagflationary debt crisis, inflation, recession, and a debt crisis at the same time. I'd like to drill down on some of these points, one about relating to debt and one relating to inflation and policy responses to it. So as it relates to debt, it seems to me we've been in the last 20 years, we've been we've already been through two debt cycles. There was a debt cycle in the early 2000s in which uh, multinational companies, American companies, uh, took on a lot of debt to fund their expansions as they deleveraged, as as economists say. Uh, we had a jobless recovery, early 2000s, um, very slow job growth, sustained high levels of unemployment. In 2006, 2007, 2008, the debt monster, so to speak, moved from companies to households. And household debt rose in the form of mortgages, home equity loans. And then we had this long, slow recovery coming out of that crisis uh, when households were working down their debt problems. So now it seems to me we're in a period where the debt, again, has moved to a new place, and that's the public sector, the federal government. And... Government debt, I would argue, is different than private sector debt in some respects uh, because governments, the the U.S. federal government has lasted for centuries. Uh, And governments also print their own currencies. So can can you walk us through, first of all, if you agree or disagree with the point I'm making, that the debt bubble right now is in the government sector. 
And if so, what are the implications of that? And how might that differ from the private sector debt bubbles that the United States experienced in the earlier parts of this last 20 years? Well, on the characterization of the debt, uh, I partially agree with what you say. Uh, today, the ratio of private and public debt as a share of GDP in advanced economies is 420. Slightly more than 100 is public, but there is a huge amount of private debt. And yes, in the past, sometimes the, the crisis of the corporate sector or the household sector. But it's not just public debt. You know, before the COVID crisis, the Fed was writing financial stability report, worrying about the buildup of corporate debt, highly leveraged firms that were issuing junk bonds, uh, previously high-grade firms that were fallen angel and they were downgraded uh, to below investment grade, uh, leveraged loans, uh, CLOs, uh, private debt with uh, underwriting that was very, very loose and risky, cov light and you name it. And guess what? When the COVID crisis hit, uh, the zombie corporates did not go bust because we cut policy rates back to zero, to negative in Europe. We did massive quantitative and credit easing. We even bought uh, uh, corporate debt for the first time in the U.S. and not just high grade, but even junk bonds, even high yield was purchased by the Fed. So everybody that was even a zombie, zombie household, zombie corporates, zombie governments, zombie banks, zombie shadow banks, zombie countries, they were bailed out. And not only they were bailed out, but in the corporate sector that had built up a huge amount of risk and leverage, there was further leverage and build up of debt because money was so cheap and you could borrow and refinance. So that's what happened. So it's not just that the governments are in trouble. Half of the household sector in the United States lives from paycheck to paycheck and half of the households have less than $400 of liquid cash for an emergency. And in the corporate sector, there are those that have a strong balance sheet, but there is a huge number now of firms that are extremely highly leveraged. So in the past, whether it was the dot-com bubble that went bust or the global financial crisis or COVID, we always bailed out the zombies because the reaction was always to go after the dot-com bubble to 1% policy rate. Mm -hmm. After the GFC, zero quantitative easing and credit easing. And after the COVID crisis, uh, even worse than during the GFC in terms of amount of monetary, fiscal, and credit stimulus. So all the zombie institutions were bailed out over and over again. This time around, instead, we're entering economic contraction with debt ratios that are four times higher than the 70s, twice as high as they were 20 years ago, and we have rising inflation. Mm. So central banks have to increase interest rates into an economic contraction, and they have to do credit tightening, not credit easing, QT rather than QE, and fiscally, we are running out of bullets and it's not optimal if you have inflation to feed inflation with further stimulus. Yeah. So we're entering this recession with a situation where in the past debt servicing ratio were low while debt ratio were insolvent because you had zero rates or negative rates or you name it. Now we have to increase interest rates on the short end and long term interest rates are going higher and the spreads over government bonds in the private sector are going higher. So the zombies this time around are going to go bankrupt. That's why I think this is not going to be a short and shallow recession. It's going to be a severe recession. And in addition to an economic crash, there's a risk of a financial crash, not just in the stock market, but more importantly, in the bond markets and the credit markets. And the financial crash is going to make the recession more severe. And the more severe recession is going to make the financial crash more severe. As I said, we have the worst of the 70s with the worst of the post-GFC, with geopolitical risks that may lead to conflict between great powers in the next uh, few years. And I, I want to get into the geopolitical risk. Uh, just to clarify one point, when you talk about zombie companies and zombie households, I believe what you, what you mean is, is uh, companies or households or governments that have debt that they can't pay off, uh, yeah. that, that are being kept, kept alive with the support of uh, government with of government support. Yeah, insolvent, okay. so, insolvent right, so, institution can I, be household, corporates, financial firms, government, entire countries. Right. So um, I want to ask about inflation and how this fits into this. So 
You talk a lot in your book about history. There's a very rich historical analogies in there. It seems to be one of the big differences between today and the 1970s is that today most central banks, including the Federal Reserve, have a formal inflation target of 2%. In the 1970s, uh, central bank policies were unmoored in the sense that uh, Richard Nixon had taken the U.S. off the gold standard. Um, there was not a formal inflation target. They were kind of playing it by ear, uh, literally from month to month. How does the 2% inflation target that the Fed and other central banks have shape this outlook? Uh, that, that, that's one question. And then the other question, you know, we talk a lot about inflation. Do you believe the central banks when they say they're going to keep? Obviously, it didn't work in the last year. They weren't able to keep inflation at 2%. But do you believe them when they say they're going to get inflation back down to 2%? And if so, at what cost? Yes, they're both very important questions. Uh, on the first one, my view is that the reason after the great stagflation of the 70s had low inflation was not uh, only the move to inflation targeting. There were a huge number of positive global aggregate supply shocks that kept a lead on wage growth and on inflation. You know, Soviet Union collapsed, China moved to a market economy, India reformed, most emerging markets joined the global labor supply. So you had a massive supply of labor from poor and emerging markets that kept a lead on wage growth in advanced economies. And, of and, course, and also women joining the, the global workforce. Yeah, and joining the global workforce and producing uh, China goods, India, software services, Russia and other emerging markets, commodity, uh, very cheaply. We had uh, weakness of labor and workers uh, because of Reagan, Margaret Thatch, and the movement towards less unionization with massive migration from south to north, from poor to rich, that kept a lead on wage growth in U.S., Europe, and advanced economies. We, of course, had massive technological innovations that produced then a reduction in the cost of lots of goods and services. We had not only globalization of goods, but trading goods in services, in the movement of capital, labor, data, technology, information. That was also disinflationary. So we had, and we had overall opening up of the world and greater integration and so on. So these were massive forces that led to low inflation on top of inflation targeting. Inflation targeting was probably the least of them. Today instead, and these are the medium-term forces, it's not just the short-run COVID or Russia-Ukraine or the zero-COVID policy of China. We have massive forces that are medium-long-term that are stagflationary. They reduce potential growth and they increase the cost of production. We have the beginning of deglobalization and protectionism. We're talking about reshoring manufacturing from China to high-cost Europe or U.S. or French-shoring. We're talking about secure trade rather than free trade. We have aging of population, not only in advanced economies, but also in China, in Russia, in South Korea. We have restrictions to migration all over the world. Uh, the Biden policies of migration, frankly, are no different than those of Donald Trump. Uh, we're preventing millions of people, maybe rightly so, from entering illegally in our country. We have now this geopolitical tension between U.S. and China that leading to a decoupling between them and restriction to trade in technology, data, information, capital, labor, goods and services. We have global climate change that is stagflationary. You know, lack of water and desertification increases food prices and food prices were spiking before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we have that as we bash rightly so fossil fuel producers, they're under investing into new capacity, while the increase in renewable is not sufficient to compensate for that. So even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Brent was $100 a barrel because there is a structural lack of supply of energy. We have, of course, a geopolitical depression 
And it's not just uh, Russia, Ukraine, it's US, China, it's Iran, Israel, and US, it's North Korea. This is gonna lead to deglobalization, decoupling, fragmentation of the global economy, a balkanization of global supply chains. And those are costly, of course, they create friction in global movements of goods, services, and trade. We have cyber warfare that reduces production when successful, or you have to pay a fortune to prevent it. Uh, we have now the backlash against a rising income and wealth inequality that rightly so is leading to fiscal policies, pro-labor, pro-union, pro-workers, pro-unemployed, pro-partially employed, pro-minorities, because otherwise we're going to have social unrest. And 80 or 90 percent of the Trump and the Biden stimulus went to workers, to unions, to unemployed, to partial employed, to minority, rightly so. And finally, we're weaponizing the U.S. dollar as a tool of foreign policy, maybe rightly so, as we're trying to contain China. But that could lead to a, eventually a fall of the value of the U.S. dollar that's inflationary. And for global trade, you need a currency that creates a, a seamless process of transaction on global trade. If you throw sand in the wheels by weaponizing the dollar, it becomes more costly to do all sorts of trade. These are 11 forces that are all stagflationary on the supply side. On the demand side, my view is that central banks are talking tough. They're saying we're going to fight inflation at any cost, but they're going to blink and they're going to wimp out. Mm. They're going to blink and they're going to wimp out because there is so much private and public debt compared to decades ago. And it's not just the game of chicken between the fiscal authority and the monetary authority. Economists call it fiscal dominance. If you run a large budget deficit, then the central bank has to monetize it, because if you don't monetize it, then you spike interest rates and you end up into a crisis. But now there is so much private debt that uh, the folks, the economists at the Bank for International Settlement, that is the central banks of all central banks in Basel, they call it a debt trap. There is so much private and public debt that if central banks were fighting inflation, not only they would cause a hard landing of the economy, that's already occurring, but they lead to financial instability. They're going to lead to a collapse of the stock market, a collapse of the bond market, a collapse of the credit market. It's going to lead to a crisis more severe than the global financial crisis. And that financial crunch leads to a severe recession or more severe recession. And a more severe recession is going to lead to tighter financial conditions. So in my view, central banks will have to blink and monetize these large deficits. Because if you cannot or you're not willing to raise taxes or cut spending to deal with debt ratios that are unsustainable, then the path of least resistance is to monetize it and cause a bout of unexpected inflation because unexpected inflation can reduce the real value of nominal debt of long duration at fixed interest rates. Well, and so that's what's happening, and that's what's going to be happening in the future. So you have supply forces and demand forces that they all lead to inflation, to stagflation, and eventually to debt crisis. So you, you don't believe they'll stick to the 2% inflation targets, but, and you say they'll blink and wimp out. Let me yeah. ask you, if you were running the Federal Reserve... Do you think that would be the right thing to do, to blink and wimp out? Well, the, the problem is the following. Central banks, they're not uh, central banks. They're not dumb. They're not stupid. They're actually very sophisticated. But now they're in a trap because even if we didn't have the debt problem, we have a negative supply shock. Either you raise rates to fight inflation and you cause a recession, a hard landing, or if you don't do that because you want to maintain growth, then there is a risk of a de-anchoring of inflation and inflation expectation. Then if you have so much private and public debt, there's another dilemma, financial stability. If you raise rates enough to fight inflation, not only you cause an economic crash and a severe recession, but you cause also a financial crash, financial instability. So there is no good option for central banks. And the temptation is to let inflation go to a higher level to wipe out the real value of uh, nominal debt. Now, I don't expect uh, hyperinflation in advanced economies. I don't even expect, uh, say, double-digit inflation. It's enough for the average inflation rate to go from 2%, say, to 6%, and then 10-year Treasury yields that this year went from 1 to 4, they have to be at least 8, 6% inflation plus a 2% real. So you get nominal Treasury bond yields at 8%, and then mortgage rates above 10%, and any private borrowing is going to be also 
in nominal terms, double digits, and in real terms, very high. And that's a recipe for a financial crash and massive kind of defaults. But damn if you do and damn if you don't. Because if you don't fight inflation, then you have a de Which would you do? Which one would you choose, inflation or recession? Uh, in my view, end up with all of them because okay. the, the constraint you face are one in which you're going to end up with inflation, but you're not going to prevent the recession because like the 70s, if there are negative supply shocks and you react with the wrong monetary and fiscal policy, you still end up with inflation and recession, but you also end up with a debt crisis because you need hyperinflation to wipe out the real value of excessive debt. If inflation right. goes only from two to six, it's going to reduce some real value of the debt, not sufficiently. And then nominal real rates are going to reprice higher because there's higher actual and expected inflation. Nominal rates go higher, real rates go higher. And then anybody who has to refinance will refinance at much higher interest rates. And if your debt ratio is unsustainable, you still go bankrupt. So you postpone the defaults by a couple of years through the monetization of the debt, but you're just you can fool all of the people some of the time, some of the people all of the time. You cannot fool all of the people all of the time. So you still end up with a debt crisis. Well, so uh, I think that you've frightened enough of the people out there at this point to kind of force me to ask this question I was going to ask later. So if someone is out there listening to the world you describe us entering into, what should they do? What's your advice? How do you manage your finances uh, and your own individual economic life for this world of threats that you describe? Well, uh, there is a lot that people can do individually, even if many of these threats are collective and social. So there is this much that people can do to save themselves individually. Uh, I would say if you worry about eventually becoming technologically obsolete, uh, you have to study as a young man or woman in some uh, subjects and professions that are not going to be fully by, wiped out by AI or robotic uh, in the next few years and decades. You know, probably you want to major in something related to STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, and computer science, but also have a minor in liberal arts because, you know, to read well, to write well, to think well critically is going to be useful. So either you major in one and you minor in the other one or vice versa. But as a young person, you have to be very well-rounded and understand both technology, but having a bigger picture uh, of the world. You know, in terms of financial stuff, this year you lost money not only on equities, but you also lost money on, unquote, safe bonds because the 10-year treasury yield went from 1% to 4%. So actually the price of bonds fell more than the price on equities. The usual paradigm, 60-40, 60 equity and 14 bonds or 70-30 works if inflation is low because the price of the bonds and the price of equities are negatively correlated, risk on, risk off, growth recession. But if inflation is low but rising, then equity do poorly because bond yields are higher, but higher bond yields implies that the price of bond is lower. So you lost more money this year on bonds than you did on equities. So you have to go towards short-term treasury bonds they don't have the same market risk because they reprice as inflation goes higher. So short, you have to go term, for inflation term, index bonds. You have to term, go for golden commodities, sustainable real estate. There are other options. Right. Okay. Short-term treasury bills, inflation index bonds, maybe real estate, maybe commodities. Those are all places yeah. that might be safer. And it's interesting to me that the first thing you said uh, when I asked, how does one deal with a world of these threats? It's interesting to me. You described yourself as a happy camper, as a, as a young man who studied hard. And it sounds like you're telling your audience that the best thing you could do to insulate yourself is to study hard. Uh, well, education certainly helps. I think eventually we'll all be obsolete. <laughs> not only routine jobs, not only cognitive jobs. But as I said, even my job as an economist can be done better by the machine. But that's going to occur later than routine and cognitive jobs. And in the past, uh, returns to education were high, but in a world in which not only uh, blue-collar jobs, but also white-collar jobs, not only low-value-added jobs, but also medium-value-added jobs can be replaced by machines, that even if you have a college degree, even if you have a master, 
uh, you can be wiped out. You know, suppose you are an auditor and you got an MBA or CFA and you are doing a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. It looks like really pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, AI can take billions of data on any corporation and do an audit in a few seconds uh, while there is no way they, any human being can go through billions of transactions of a big corporation and figure out what's going wrong. So people who are auditors who have MBAs, their jobs are going to be wiped out. Most of the fintech revolution, whether it's payment system, credit allocation, asset management with robo-advisors, even some of the capital market activities, can be now automated by using big data, AI, machine learning, 5G, and sensor to give you a quote in 30 seconds uh, on a loan online by using your information from Facebook or Instagram or you are and what you do. They give you a quote in 30 seconds on how much you can borrow without having a loan officer making mistakes. Uh, eventually, most of Wall Street jobs are going to be automated. These are good jobs. These are not hamburger flipping jobs. So um, he, uh, I, I laugh a little when, when you said earlier that your job as a Fed washer could be automated. Um, some people w would argue that uh, maybe someone else should be doing the job of the Fed because it hasn't done such a great job over the last 20 years. Of course, I would add the Federal Reserve, the nation's central bank, had its own computer systems uh, uh, over these years, and those computer systems didn't do a very good job of predicting how the economy was going to perform, in part because the people who built the systems forgot to put in a financial system, uh, a banking system into those models. So how much can we trust the models that you're talking about, the computer algorithms, <clears throat> to really run a better world for us? Well, you know, policy decisions at the end of the day are also political. They're not just uh, purely technocratic. So even if uh, a right model using AI could predict the business cycle, then there's a trade-off. How much you allow inflation to be higher, uh, to have uh, a little more of growth and less unemployment as opposed to <clears throat> having the reverse. How much raising interest rates is going to lead to a financial crash. So there are trade-offs that imply uh, political decisions, social decisions, and distributional effects, who's going to be losing jobs or gaining them, who's going to be having his or her own wealth and savings wiped out or reduced, because all these policies have distributional effects. So I'm not sure that a machine uh, can do it, uh, but certainly uh, there are a huge amount of biases in policy makings that have to do with a variety of distortions, and maybe we can make sounder in principle policy by using some of these more advanced uh, tools. I, I want to move, try to move quickly because we're, we're running short on time through a couple of points. W one question is this. You, you raise some really profound questions about how this new information age that we've entered into is going to change the way humans live on this planet. Um, w one could argue that the, the system that we have, the system of governance and taxation, uh, it w was a system built for an industrial age when humans worked with machines to build cars and to build shoes and, and everything else. Are, are our systems, for instance, our tax system, structured properly for an information age where machines can do most of the work for us? Uh, in many ways, they're not. And I'll give you the following example. AI eventually is going to lead to structural, permanent, technological unemployment. And people say the solution might be in part uh, UBI, universal basic income. You're giving an income to those that lost job permanently, not because they're lazy, but just <clears throat> because they're unlucky. They're in the wrong firm sector and cannot be retrained. But then, unless you run a huge budget deficit, you have to finance it. Now, if you finance it with... Uh, traditional, you know, income taxes is not going to work because most of the people unemployed are not going to have a labor income, while most of the benefits of that AI is going to go to capital. The share of capital has already been rising, and technological innovation is capital-intensive, skill buyers, and labor saving. So if you own the machines or the financial capital owns the machine, you'll do well. If you're really in the top 10% of distribution of skills, you're going to do well. But everybody else is going to be, unquote, eventually permanently unemployed. So you need uh, 
wealth taxation or an, another way of taxing whoever are going to be the winners and transfer the money to those who are left behind. So you have to think about completely different. Or instead of universal basic income, maybe you gave a universal basic uh, public services. So you're providing healthcare, education, retraining, uh, you know, social benefits, uh, uh, elderly, you know, pension and so on freely to people, not even with a pay-as-you-go payroll taxes. But then again, you have to tax those that have won from this technological revolution to be able to this, sustain the provision of free public services to those who are left behind. This, this raises profound questions about the role that government plays in our lives. There are a lot of people out there who don't want the government taxing us or redistributing our income or providing services. But let mm -hmm. me move on because... We, yeah, but we, if we I are... could make a point about that one, it's true because uh, even UBI doesn't deal with the issue that... Uh, you need the dignity of work. People, many people don't want a welfare check because then they feel like they're a social parasite and having just a welfare check for all your life is not a solution. And that's a problem with a universal basic income. But right. that's a more fundamental issue that I don't know how we're going to address then. Well, so we, we, we've talked about a lot of uh, troubling, uh, disturbing threats to the economy, to our social structure, our infrastructure. Uh, let's try to end it on a positive note. Um, you do have a chapter in the book about what can go right. So yeah. let's talk about that. What can go right over the next 20 years mm -hmm. uh, for the country, and what are the chances of that happening? Well, after the first 10 chapters, we have 10 mega threats, and in each one of them, I discuss also the solutions, but there are costs to each one of them. There is a dystopian chapter 11, when everything goes wrong, and all these threats feed on each other. And there's a chapter 12 about uh, a less dystopian or more utopian future where step by step we resolve each one of these problems. I would say to resolve these problems, not only we need, uh, unquote, enlightened uh, uh, public policy leadership, but at the national and international level, but we need also to have technology essentially resolving many of these problems. Maybe eventually there are technological solutions that do not exist today to climate change or dealing with pandemics as we discover these new vaccines. And if you have uh, AI, robotic automation, creating a bigger economic pie, potential growth is higher. That ratio, private, public, implicit, explicit, are more sustainable. And of course, we have to tax uh, those who are better off and redistribute to other ones, but that becomes more feasible. So issues of debt, issue of economic growth becomes more sustainable. And maybe some of the political backlash against democracy or the geopolitical tensions may also be reduced. The only two caveats I'll make on technology being not only a boon, but potentially a bane, is that, as I pointed out, technological innovation is capital-intensive, skill buys and labor-saving. So unless we have the right redistribution policies, we end up with a world of greater inequality. Second point, usually technological innovations are always induced by governments who want to build bigger and more deadly weapons to fight wars against their own strategic enemies. So the Industrial Revolution, the first globalization, not only did not prevent World War I, but built the weapons that led to World War I being very ugly. And in the Roaring Twenties, we had another technological revolution that led to building the weapons that led us to fight World War II. And right now we're facing a strategic rivalry between uh, U.S. and the West, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And the fight or the race about who's going to dominate AI, machine learning, robotic, automation, quantum computing, and so on, is not only which country is going to be dominating the industries of the future, China or the United States, but it's also who's going to be the geopolitical and military and security hegemon, because the weapons of the future are going to be cyber, are going to be uh, robots, are going to be robot soldiers, are going to be drones, and autonomous weapons vehicles. So who wants that race for AI wants also the race on becoming the leading geopolitical hegemonic power of the world. That's why this year, the former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, wrote a book with Henry Kissinger, the greatest geopolitical strategist of our time, saying the fight about AI 
is also a fight between U.S. and China who's going to becoming the dominant power geopolitically for this century. So there is also this dark side of technology. Technology is often built and developed to find bigger weapons that lead to war. So it makes war actually more likely rather than less likely. And that's one of the side effects of technology. Well, I, 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 I tried to lure you into a, an optimistic conclusion to this conversation, but I see even the optimistic scenarios include their share of threats. Uh, let's hope... They do. Uh, let's hope that uh, humanity uh, finds its way to uh, adapt and cooperate. Uh, and if not, I think we can all say, uh, don't tell, don't say that Dr. Rubini didn't warn you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, hope for the best, but prepares also for the worst. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>